its truths are eternal. And as the soul of men and women will go on into eternity, it is important that we would use the time we've been given now to properly consider these things so that we will be ready for that moment when we step out of time and into eternity and have to deal with the eternal God. Be with us now, Heavenly Father, and bless us. We want to remember in prayer all those that are sick, those that are going through different uh, challenges, uh, some due to this current pandemic situation we find ourselves in, others' uh, conditions of health or, or fini financial difficulties. Dear Lord, let us know them all. We cannot even enumerate the needs of our own congregation. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to pray collectively now for all of those situations where Thou art the one who is the only one that can help. Be with each one, Heavenly Father. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I listened to this morning's service on Zacchaeus, um, and then again, uh, as Brother Doug related the uh, account of uh, Newton and his conversion from being, as he called himself, the great blasphemer to a man of God who wrote not only the most popular Christian hymn, I think, of all time, but I think it's even been termed the most popular song of all time, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And so my mind was turned to a, a familiar chapter, and um, I'd like to uh, turn to John, the third chapter, And start reading with the first verse there. John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. It's a familiar passage. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou the master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and he received not our witness but I have told if I have told you earthly things and he believe not how shall he believe if I tell you of heavenly things and no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven even the son of man which is in heaven and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. I'd like to conclude with the 19th verse. Brother Doug spoke about many different... How the, how the gospel of the kingdom came to many different lives in different ways. He talked about Zacchaeus, he talked about... John Newton, and how the gospel came to him in his extremity, in his difficulty, in the middle of a horrible storm. Here we see another man, a man of reason, a man of religion, coming to Jesus and asking him about this kingdom of God. He actually didn't ask him, I should, I should correct that, he just simply made a statement. He said, we know you're a teacher come from God because no one can do the miracles that you do except God's with him. And Jesus then gave him back a statement, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, can get worn out if it's used improperly. If it's just attached to somebody's name, is he a born-again Christian? Yeah, he's a born-again Christian. What does it mean? And this is exactly what Nicodemus struggled with. Jesus told him, he gave him a statement, except a man be born again. Another way you can translate that is, except a man be born from above. And Nicodemus didn't know what he, he meant. He, he confused the, the physical birth with this spiritual birth that Jesus was talking about. I had a conversation with a brother about this, this very topic, the problem we have with reason and faith. And the problem that a reasoning man finds himself in when he tries to tries to comprehend one who is as great as God is. 
I think all of us would freely admit that our reasoning is limited. It's limited to our own understanding. It's limited to uh, our own experience. It's even limited by our, our, our level of intellect. And yet so many people would want to box God in inside a framework that they can reason around. You're all the way on the wrong track when you try to do that. Why? Because any God you can reason around is a God that's smaller than reason. If he is to be God, if he is to be indeed the source of all things, the one who simply said of himself, he is that he is, I am that I am. If you want to think of it another way, he is the reference point for all things. Anything you wish to measure, you must begin first with God, since he is the source of all things. So anything that can contain God, even something as big as reason, won't work. It's a container too small for him to fit inside. Though God is not unreasonable, reason will never let you fully experience God. You know, I heard it explained this way once, uh, so bear with me as I use this analogy. When man first sinned and died spiritually, it was as if there was an organ that was part of him that could experience God. That part of him died. He didn't die physically. You know, Adam and Eve continued to live for some 900 years after the fall. But it was like that part of him that could experience God died. And in its place, he had to use his reason to relate to God. A tool that's unsuitable for the task. I do a lot of uh, DIY stuff around the house and fixing things and I needed to change uh, some some parts on my on my big van back in the summer. And so I went to my online university, YouTube, and uh, there I looked up how to change these <laughs> these joints. And I'm following along with the guy, and he takes off the, disconnects a few things, spins out. I don't know what the names of the pieces are. I'm just looking, okay, I got that. I know what that is. He spun it around, and, and, and then he pulls out this thing. It looked like an enormous C-clamp with a machine screw through the middle of it. And he hooks his half-inch impact gun up to that thing and uses it to drive out the bearing. Okay, right at that point, I'm calling Brother Miller. <laughs> this is something that I, I don't have that tool. All of my tools, and I've got a whole bunch of them, were unequal to the task of what I saw that man doing with that specialized tool on the one-ton frame of my van. I realized at that point I had the wrong tool. I, all right, I didn't have the right tool to properly tackle this. And we must realize, too, that our own reason is insufficient to comprehend a God as great as, as he is. The one who is the birth of, of all reason, all intellect, all understanding, cannot be ringed in by our reasoning. It won't work. 
There is something else that has to happen. And Jesus pointed out this thing. In fact, he highlighted it as something not of this world. You must be born from above. you got to start all over again. But this time, that birth has to be from above. There is a new set of experiences. You think about it for a moment. I think we read these words and we don't, we don't give them proper weight. We don't give them the time they deserve. Because we've heard them before. Born again. Yeah, I know what that means. Do you? Think about it for a moment. A baby conceived in the womb grows in that warm, uh, fluid-filled environment, uh, constrained by, by his mother's womb, uh, but, but lovingly cradled in a special way, fed exactly what it needs so that it can continue to grow, and then suddenly expelled violently from its mother, painfully, into a new world, a new medium, one where he has to breathe for the first time. He's had nine months to develop his lungs, but he's never used them until that point. And the first thing he does, or she does, is, is, is push down the diaphragm and open up those lungs for the first time, take his first full breath of air, and let out a scream. Think about how different that was for that baby, to go from that one state to the other. And Jesus says, the kind of change I'm talking about, it's as dramatic as going from, from being in the warm, comforting environment of the womb out into a, into a world that you've never seen before. It's that different. Being born again is not a mental assent to something. It never has been. Why? Because it would be insufficient. Anyone that can reason you into the kingdom of God, someone else smarter than him can come along later and reason them back out of it again. You must be born from above. It's a whole new experience. You will find on the other side of that new birth that you're helpless. your former position, even as a religious leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, your years of biblical scholarship count for nothing when it comes to the new birth. Jesus said to the Pharisees that were gathered around him, he says, search the scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. They're the ones that testified of me. Often, takes an extreme situation for people to turn to the Lord. Why is that? Because you realize your own limitations. You realize your powerlessness. You realize how foolish you really are. Before I was converted, I could, I could give you through reason, many reasons why it was good to become a Christian. I wanted to be a Christian. But with that same reason, there was, a, there was a second edge to it, one that cut me as well. 
if this thing is so good and so wonderful and you can reason why it is, why do you keep doing what you're doing? Why do you do, as the scripture says, as the sow that is washed returns to the mire? Why? And I had no good answer. In fact, I had to get to that point, like it says in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall free me from the body of this death? I realized how corrupted my own body was. My reason, which I thought was pretty good, I guess, better than average maybe, not as good as some, but better than average. I had my reasons, but my reasons weren't enough. They were insufficient in the face of the reality of my sinful condition. And so where the new birth happens, there's another story that's added in the Lamb's Book of Life. Another account of how amazing grace reached down to save a wretch. Whether it was one that went to extremes like John Newton, or one that was a relatively good kid, as people may have thought I was. Certain elements of the story are the same. But other things are just totally individual to the person. And I have to apologize now to Brother Doug. I didn't uh, get back to him in time. I don't have Brother Zorn here to share a testimony this afternoon, but I still would like to share a testimony with you. The testimony is one that is written down. It's close to my heart because it has part of, it's part of the reason why I'm here. It's the account of my grandparents that was recorded during and after the Second World War. And I'd like to read a portion of it for you. I, I hope you find it not only interesting, but perhaps appropriate, considering what seems to be the theme of today's messages. I'd like to begin where the Second World War ends. To set the stage a little bit, my father's family was born in what's now Serbia, the former Yugoslavia. Before that, it was the Empire of Austria-Hungary. From what I'm told, they were wealthy, quite wealthy. In fact, their family owned some, I, I worked it out this morning, I think around 224 acres of farmland in an area that had some of the best farmland in Europe. One of the older brothers from the Mansfield Church, Brother John Bach, who knew my family, going back to the old country, he pulled me aside once and we were talking, he said, you know, your family was rich. <laughs> I said, yeah, they're not now. Uh, but at one time, riches were, were, were there. But then along came the war. And though my family had nothing to do with the Nazis or with the, even with the German army, they lived back in the country in a, close to a smaller town called Sibats and uh, farmed out there and had good neighbors that were Serbs and Hungarians and uh, you know when, when, when those that had participated with the German army and the German occupation when they saw things were turning the other way many of them left with the German army but my 
grandfather's neighbors said, well, why would you go? This is your home. This is where you live. You have nothing to do with them. You have no reason to fear. Stay. Well, things didn't work out so well. My grandfather, by virtue of the fact that he was uh, German, German descent, was rounded up with the others and narrowly escaped mass execution and was sent by train to go work in the mines in Russia, essentially slave labor. My grandmother and my great-grandfather and the children were sent to a town called Gagavo in the pronunciation of the area, and it was a former German town that they simply surrounded with a bit of barbed wire and they had some soldiers there, and while they pillaged one half of it, they shoved all the old, old people, women and children in the other half until they were done and then switched them over to the side that they had already pillaged and finished with the rest of the, the town and simply starved people to death. There's stories in here that are gruesome and I'm going to skip those ones. I'm going to read just a portion of this. So the story picks up now in this town called Gagavo where my grandmother, my father, and his two brothers and sister found themselves with their grandfather and great-grandfather. The war finally ended on May 9th, 1945. However, it didn't make any difference to our situation. The partisans were bent on eradicating us Germans in their starvation camps. The partisans were the ones that had fought, uh, they were communist, and they had fought uh, as a regular force with the Russians against the, the German army. And uh, once the German army had been expelled, then those that were of German descent uh, were fair game. Um, in the fall of the same year, my Erna, that's my dad's oldest sister, contracted typhoid. We had to separate her from the other children and we brought her to a special house in the village. The house was furnished with beds full of sick people. Old and young lay there with no medication. Everyone either took care of himself or was helped by a family member. Erna's temperature from her fever went up to 41 degrees Celsius. I could only bring it down slightly with cold, wet sheets. When they were warm, they were taken off and replaced with cold ones again. That was my job, day and night, while I shared her bed. When her temperature rose, she moved her little body as a signal to me, and I would get up and take care of her. She was not allowed to eat anything. Her intestines discharged only mucus and blood. She was in a delirious state most of the time. Her situation was very serious, and I feared that I would lose her. In prayer, I urgently begged our Heavenly Father not to take her from me. Now, there's something else you need to know about my family. My father's parents, though they both came from believing households, were not members. They had not been baptized, they got married, and I think they even stopped attending church. Deep in my heart, I carried the hope that when my husband would come home, that we would be a complete family again, with no one missing. Someone gave me the advice to find a little alcohol for Erna. I had an opportunity to get a whole bottle of wine, but she could only taste very little of it. I cooked a little Annie's tea, and with that, she held on to life. While I was with Erna, my sister-in-law, Kathy, now, that's Kathy Hunziger, who some of the older ones may remember, Kathy and Peter Hunziger, that used to attend the old church at 274 Western Road. My sister-in-law, Kathy, took care of my other three boys. That soon changed when Kathy herself contracted typhoid and had to be separated. Erna was now showing signs of feeling better and had some interest in her surroundings. She asked to see her brother Edwin, 
so I took him to the house and let him look through the window. She was homesick for her play companions. I bundled her up and took her home to be with the rest of my children. Since Kathy had to move into the sick house, I took care of her two sons. One day, as Erna was learning to walk again, she followed her brothers out to the street. She was very weak and was little more than skin and bones. She often said, Mama, I'm hungry, to me, but I could not give her any food, for we had none. The food from the soup kitchen would have torn her weak stomach and thin intestines into pieces. She felt the hunger pains in full measure. She, she stood on the street and watched the neighbor's dog eating some noodle soup from its bowl. When satisfied, the dog left the rest and went on. Erna, as hungry as she was, could not see such waste, so she kneeled down and finished the noodles with her fingers and ate them. The lady next door was observing the skinny child so hungry for her dog's food. It touched her heart. From then on, she always had a little leftover food from her table for my hungry child. That food helped Erna regain her strength. How grateful I was that once again God helped us in such a visible way through a caring neighbor. Some people managed to get extra food to add to their daily food rations. My children also benefited from it. To have extra food supplements, they had to have the good fortune of not being caught when they went out on begging trips to the neighboring villages. You see, this camp was not uh, impervious. It's not like it had some high wall like you see maybe some of the German concentration camps from the Nazi era. It was just a bit of barbed wire. They depended on the fact that the mothers were there with their children. They wouldn't send the children out. So the mothers would sneak out, but they had to come back to their kids. So they knew what would keep them there. Very early in the morning, many tried to leave the camp by sliding on their bellies through the strictly patrolled lines. Late at night, the patrols had their fun catching them and taking everything away from them. Hunger had brought us to the point that I was ready and willing to go and beg for food as well. I would try to beg also for the sake of keeping us alive, even if it meant that I would put myself in danger. My cousin Barbara and I slipped out of the camp very early in the morning. I believe that Barbara is Barbara Walter. Uh, maybe not. I could be wrong on that. Um, early in the morning, I reached the neighboring village of Bizdan. We went begging from house to house, and people gave whatever they could. A small piece of bread, a small piece of bacon, a little flour. We came back with these gifts the very same day, very late at night, and sneaked through the patrol line. We were successful and had something to show for it. It gave us the courage to try again. I went with Grandpa this time, and again, the people gave whatever they could out of pity. In the evening, we were caught by the partisans and had everything taken away from us. They locked us overnight in an open corn dryer standing in the field. In the morning, we were released and returned empty-handed to the camp. It was so discouraging. Were we not worthy of even that little piece of bread for the hunger we suffered? To keep my children alive, I tried again and again with several other people. Once again, I was caught with a group of people and had everything taken away again. This time, they locked us up overnight in a chicken coop. In the morning, they let us go so that we could stand in line and listen to their insults and ridicule for daring to go out begging. That was still not enough punishment. They locked us into a dark basement with one small hole for a window and no toilet facilities. While walking down the steps, the partisans gave each of us either a fist thrust into our ribs or a kick in the back with his boots so that we would tumble down the stairs. This treatment continued. We were let out once per day to breathe in some fresh air, given a little food, and then beaten and kicked back down into the hole. Since there were no toilet facilities, everything was done against the dirt walls of the underground basement. Erna came looking for me and found the small window where I reached up to breathe in some fresh air. She watched for the patrol to pass and then handed a little food down to me through the hole. After three days, we were finally let out of that stinking and contaminated hole in the ground. 
What a relief it was to be with my children once again. I felt better. Once I was out, I noticed that Edwin, the oldest of the boys, had lost the sparkle from his eyes and looked sad. His lower body was swollen from the legs up. I was troubled as it was a visible sign of malnutrition. Hunger was obviously having a tremendous effect on him. None of my children ever begged me for food. They knew that we had none, and thus they carried the pain of hunger quietly. Here was another situation for me to beg God for his help and guidance. I remember the lady in the soup kitchen who also milked a few cows. The lady agreed to get a little milk for my boy. I brought home a cup of milk for Edwin. At the same time, the lady complained of a severe headache, and I was able to give her some aspirin. Because of her goodwill and kindness, I was able to bring home a cup of milk for Edwin every day, and he began to improve. After that, I gave him some rosemary tea and some water pills, and the fluid began leaving his legs. It was a beautiful sign that God was never far from us. One day, my lively Bernal was playing on the street. He was coming around the corner of the house and ran into two people carrying the big soup pot from the community kitchen to the distribution center. Both his hands went straight into the hot soup. He still remembers the stinging pain of his burns as he tried to spread some cooking oil over his burnt fingers and hands with a goose feather. He didn't move at all and never complained. Much time passed before it healed. Malnourished bodies always take a long time to heal. The days went by and once again we were out of extra food supplements. My sister-in-law proposed that I should go on a begging trip again. My body had not yet recuperated from the last three days when I was locked up in the basement, and I felt too weak to go. So Kathy decided to go with Erna on this adventure. In the evening, they safely came back into the camp and brought some gifts of food. What a joy it was to have some food for our starving stomachs. Erna still remembers that trip. She was going from house to house and asking Hungarian for a little bread, and the people understood her. I think that's roughly how you say it. As people died and the population in the village decreased, we were frequently moved from one house to another. When the winter of 1945 settled in, we lived closer to the outskirts of the village. It was a small house with a backyard connected to vineyards, and from there it spread out into the fields. The owner of the house was still alive, and he kept a small room for himself next to our bigger room. He was a kind old man, and shared what little he had with us. He told us that his corn was stored up in the attic, and that he had a big pile of straw in the backyard. We had a stove in our room, and we slowly cooked his corn for hours. I used small bundles of straw as fuel for the fire. We now received our portions from the soup kitchen in the form of coarsely ground corn pulp. It was not edible unless I baked it again in the pan for a while to soften it. Everything was made carefully in a very sparing way. The burning of the straw warmed our room a little. We shared the room with Grandpa Denzinger, my sister-in-law, Kathy, and her two children, along with my four children. It was hard to survive in such bitter, cold weather. We didn't have many clothes to protect us from the cold. Beside, we were plagued with lice and needed to get rid of as many lice as possible every day. It was everyone's job to do this, young and old alike. This plague of lice threatened our already weakened supply of blood. You had to take off your clothes one by one and catch as many lice as possible. The children with their nimble fingers were the experts. The older ones with their poor eyesight had a harder time to catch them. A little old lady with long hair came to Grandpa to have, his, have her hair cut off. She couldn't handle it anymore. You can just imagine what that was like to cut that away. Cold winter persisted. One day, two men, members of Grandpa's church, so my grandfather was a member of the Nazarene church, they came to visit us. They left a basket of food in the vineyard. When it was dark outside, Kathy and I went to bring it into the house. 
What a big surprise. We had a little bread, dried beans, and a piece of smoked ham. How grateful we were that God had guided these men to provide us for us again. I'd like to skip ahead a little bit here. The next day, early in the morning of February 28, 1946, our grandpa, grandpa was taken on a hearse out to the graveyard and thrown into a mass grave. He got typhoid and, and died. We never knew into which grave he was thrown. My dear friend brought me the sad news. In the morning, when he had arrived at the sick house, he couldn't find the grandpa anywhere. He had passed away in the night, saying farewell to this sorrowful earth. It was better to die than to live in such a dismal situation. I'd like to skip ahead. There's, there's a particular part. I came home and told my uncle Primus everything. He too felt that we had had enough of this kind of life. He agreed that the time had come for us to leave. In the meantime, the part that I haven't read is uh, my grandmother was able to get a job through the summer months because of course everything was collectivized, not owned by the state. The fields needed to be reaped. And so there were teams of workers that were uh, put together to harvest the fields that had been uh, planted and to do the work on the farms in the area. And she managed to get a job as a cook for one of these crews, so they were able to get out of the, of the death camp, as it were, and to be in the, um, uh, out, in the, out in the countryside. And they still were able to keep in contact, and they decided that now was the time if they were gonna to try to escape from, from what was rapidly becoming communist uh, Europe, that they would have to do it quickly. The only way was to get across the border into Hungary. So they decided to risk it. My cousin John, his son, was already stationed in Novi Sad, which was a gathering place for the people being shipped to the coal mines. Uncle Krumus went the following day to Novi Sad and talked with his son. He agreed to escape and came back to Cerenka, which is the larger town, and Marcus uh, harks back to that area, uh, to the camp. We kept him hidden in our bedroom until we were ready to depart. I still had to pick up Erna and Edwin from the farms. The children had been sent to some friends to live on their farms because even though she was cooking for the camp, she was only allowed two children. So she kept the youngest two close to her and the oldest two were sent to work in some, some uh, local farms. Um, <clears throat> the farmers were not happy to let the children go but were convinced in the end that it was better for them and for their future to go. That's the future of the children. Erna was unwilling to come with me because she feared that she might be caught and sent back to the concentration camp. She preferred to stay with the people and work on the farm. In order to convince her, I had to promise to bring her back to the farm if we should get caught. So we all walked back to Cherbinka, having two more to hide in our bedroom. Nobody was to know what was being conspired in our bedroom. It would take two or three days before our plan was ready to be put into action. Uncle Krumus was to look for a man willing to take us to the Hungarian border close to Gagawo. That village was only 18 kilometers from the border and we knew that many people from the Camp Gagawo would also gather there for their escapes. Uncle Krumus found a man with a small open truck. 
He would take us close to the border of Gakawa, but we would have to pay a substantial amount of money. Meanwhile, Sophie and I walked along the Canal River Dam to see which way would be the best way to get to the outskirts of the village and onto the highway. Our camp was located right in the middle of the town, making it difficult to safely get to the outskirts of the village. The walkway on the dam looked almost deserted and would be even more deserted at night. This information was also added to our plan. Each of us had a task to follow, and we hoped that with God's protection, we wouldn't have any problems. There were five adults, my uncle Krumus and his children, Sophie, Margaret, and John, my four children, and myself. Everything was now ready and the day's work was done. We packaged our food provisions and, a few, and the few clean clothes we had. Only Sophia had to finish working her night shift. Fear and trepidation gripped us as we watched our surroundings with increasing alertness. When Sophia left the room at 11 p.m. for the start of her shift in the grain storehouse, she noted how brightly the moon was shining in the clear night sky. She turned to me with the words, Maria, this night sky is so bright and clear. We all knew that the danger of being caught was greater, and the clear sky could ruin our escape. Yet, a feeling of comfort filled my heart. Within an hour, our God can change the clear sky to darkness. Before long, Sophia came through the door. She had left her job during her break. Her work companion was shoveling grain, but Sophia would not return to give her co-worker a break. We were all dressed with our few belongings in hand, ready to begin our journey. Sophia announced that it was now very dark outside. Eckhart and I were the first to open and pass the garden gate into the street. Then came Bernald and Sophia, and I overheard her whispering to my son, who was a few steps ahead of her. Open the door, he whispered back. Aunt Sophia, the door is open. This is how overcast and dark it now was. It even started to rain a little. Next came John and Edwin, and the fourth pair was Uncle Cruz with Margaret. Erna was the last to close the door. We all quickly crept along the main street in intervals. We then came around the corner into a side street which led to the Canal River Dam. The fear of being discovered urged us to move as quickly as possible. We were worried that someone had already discovered Sophia's absence after her break. made their way to the border, and I'd like to read just the last little bit here. We rested on the ground for a while. The two young leaders, the two young local boys with their guides to take them across the border, had already made it clear to me that in the event that we might get caught, that I was to say they were my children. The two boys stayed close to me and helped me carry some of our bundles. The boys listened for the sound of the passing patrols. Suspense gripped the group. Freedom was so close. We only needed to take a few steps over the small road, and we would be in Hungary. No one spoke. Everyone was already planning their escape route. How would they get across? How many steps would they have to take? It was quiet. No noises were heard. The leaders gave us the signal to go. Like a herd of cattle, the first ones started to run out over the road and tumbled into the Hungarian fields, and the rest followed. Suddenly, we heard the dreaded shout, Stop! Stop! And most of the group was over the border, and the rest ran after them. A Serbian patrol was lying down in a trench between the cut corn stalks. Bernal was the unlucky one to have stepped on him. Had he been watching or sleeping, we didn't know, but he was in Bernal's way and we were caught. All eleven of us stood still and waited. We knew too well how fast they could shoot, and it had happened often enough at this border. The guard drove us with his pointed rifle to a hut on the road. We were sure that we would be sent back to Camp Gagawa. I wondered what was going through Bernal's mind. I put my bundles down on the ground and my six children sat down around me. 
The rest attempted to beg the patrol to have pity on us and let us go. My cousin John was suspected of being our leader, while the two young leaders sat quietly beside me. Uncle Crimus had a hard time convincing the guard that his son was not the leader. After a while, we started to pull out a small amount of money we'd hidden under our clothes. Uncle Crimus had brought some goodies along with the foreknowledge that bribes might be needed. The guard collected everything and hid it away. He then came back and with a firm and direct voice ordered us to follow him. One of the boy leaders came close to my side and whispered, Lady, he will let us go now. We followed the guard in single file until we came to a small bridge. We had to cross over this ditch to get to Hungarian ground. We had not previously noticed that a ditch was there. He stopped at the bridge and signaled us to cross over into Hungary. Watch so that you are not caught by the Hungarian patrol and sent back to Camp Gagavol, he said. Then he turned and left us standing there. This was the final ending of our stay in Yugoslavia. We were free at last. God had heard all of our prayers and had not forsaken us. The guard was once again a tool in his hands. There's more to the story. My grandmother didn't make it to Hungary. While she was there, it was subsistence living, a day's work for a handful of flour and some eggs to make a little bit of a meal for her children. She realized that that was not the way. She didn't know if my grandfather was alive or dead in Russia. And she prayed again. And the Lord answered her very distinctly in a dream. He told her, go to Germany. You will meet your husband there. Didn't make any sense. My grandpa went east to Russia, not west to Germany. My grandmother had never been to Germany before. How was she to support uh, five small children getting across that for small children getting us across the borders through wartime Europe. How is all that going to happen? Reason rebels against that sort of an answer. But faith in the God that has led already along the way and provided again and again and again says, I will trust you. That is the difference. Not an unreasonable God but a God that is greater than reason. And so it was. Let me finish with one short paragraph to conclude. This is now in Germany, settled in a refugee camp, what was formerly a German camp in Dachau. After we were settled in and were physically provided for, I became very hungry to hear the word of God. I searched in the nearby vicinity to find a Nazarene church. After some time, I found the address of a small group of refugee Nazarene believers and began gathering with them. Once a month, the Swiss elders came to hold services in the back room of a restaurant in Munich. We gathered on the first Sunday of the month. I've heard stories about this. They partitioned off. It was kind of like a party room that you could rent in the back of the restaurant. They partitioned it off and they were at church in the back of that restaurant. They said it was interesting. When they started singing hymns, the whole restaurant would get quiet. They would listen. We gathered on the first Sunday of the month. I had a longing to join the group of God's children and dedicate my life to the one who only, and only who so wonderfully have kept me all the way. After one year on Sunday, November 13th, 1949, 
I was baptized and taken into the membership of God's children. Ernie was now 13 years of age and was my babysitter for the boys. I was free to travel. On Monday, November 14th, we received a telegram from Hof uh, Moschendorf that our dad had arrived on German soil. It would take only a few days until he was home to us. After three days, the camp policeman came to notify me that my husband was coming down the street. It was past 8 a.m. and we were just getting dressed. However, I was already on the street with Bernal right behind me rushing to meet him. The others had to finish dressing and then they came as well. What a welcome. The joy was overwhelming. What a blessing it was for my children and I to meet each other again after five years of separation. God's promise in my dream and hunger was fulfilled. The voice had said, go to Germany, there you will meet your husband. He joined me as I attended the church, and after one year, he was also baptized. We praised God because we were a family once again, and our children did well in school due to God's mercy and grace. With thankful hearts, we said, God, thank you for caring for us and proclaiming us as your own. The details are different, but the stories are the same. A birth from above, from a God who loved us all so much that he sent his own son for the entire world. But more importantly than that, that he sent his own son for you. An exchange, one for one. That's how great his love was. Brother Sai, can I ask you to find a hymn? rational, does it? Doesn't seem like something a thinking person would do. But when you feel you have nothing left, there is something in us, I think, that calls out to the one who can do something about it. As long as we can depend on our own strength, our own provision, 
our own intellect, our own popularity, our own finances, then God is far away. But when all of that gets stripped away, when there's really nothing left, that's the point where people sometimes call out for God. And that's the point we have to get to. So what gets in the way of the new birth? What prevents the new birth from happening in everyone who says, I like this idea of this Christ and uh, him dying in my place and you know heaven and all that. So what, what, what's to stop it? Very simply, it's us. The same one who says you must be born again also says, take up your cross and follow me. That means you have to die. The self that rises up in the face of God has to die. You see, it's not that you don't believe because there isn't enough proof. You don't believe because you don't want to believe, and you don't want to believe because you want to keep doing what you're doing. It's that simple. And that part of you has to die. I can't tell you how it will be for you. I can tell you how it was for me. I can tell you how it was for my grandmother. The irony, of course, is that part of you that dies is the selfish part, is the ugly part, is the part that you actually despise. Because if you're like me, I admired those things that were good and honorable and noble, but there was a problem. I couldn't do them. I knew by reason what was good, what was the right way. never helped me. It wasn't until I could say, God, I can do nothing. I said, God, if you're there. I, I couldn't even really come to the point of faith, of calling out to God as if he was there. I said, God, if you're there, please help me because I can't help myself. I keep trying to reform myself, but it gets worse, not better.